As Tim said, we are uh, early on, in the early stages of a sermon series uh, that we're calling uh, The End of the Beginning. And so we're going to dive into a big topic again this week. But before we do, we're going to pray. I want to ask God's blessing on our time. So uh, please join with me. Uh, Lord God, we are thankful for the opportunity each week to, uh, to give our attention and uh, our time to you and your word. And uh, Lord, I pray that, that this would again be a fruitful and profitable time. Uh, I pray especially, Lord, as we're thinking about some of these, these big issues of what will happen in the end and what will happen before we get there. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would instruct us, you would, you would guide us, Lord. I, spe- I pray especially for... Um, for areas where there might be disagreement, Lord, that we would have real soft hearts towards each other and especially towards your word. I pray, Lord, that this would, this would lead us closer to you and this would unite us uh, as a church. So, so I pray, God, for your blessing right now. Um, Lord, help me to, um, to teach in truth in the spirit. And uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, you would be honored and, um, and we'd be helped for this time. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so week three of uh, this series. So far, hopefully, uh, you have been convinced that there is an end coming, uh, that Jesus is returning, and uh, that there are some things that are going to happen which we're slowly talking about. Uh, hopefully, by this point, also, you've, you've realized uh, that we are uh, in the time period before the end, uh, which I've kind of called uh, the valley. And I've said that because uh, we are in between the peaks, the climaxes of the return of Jesus. Uh, we, I made this graphic for you, kind of a plot diagram of the history of humanity. And we've already seen in history the first coming of Jesus. We're anticipating the second coming. And in between is us in the valley. And uh, in the valley, uh, well, we are, the main thing we're doing really is we're waiting. That's what it means that the end is not yet here. We're kind of waiting for it to come. Uh, I know you've all got things that are going on in your lives. Uh, our, our agenda is full day to day, lots of things going on. But compared to the second coming of Jesus, I think we all agree those are relatively small potatoes. And so one of the main things we're doing really is waiting. We're waiting for this momentous event to come. Uh, we're going to look at that event in the coming weeks. Uh, but for di- today, I thought it would be good to think about this time of waiting. And so our question for today, we kind of have one big question each week, is this, how do we wait faithfully? If you're a Christian this morning, if you're part of the church, uh, one of the things that should be running through your mind is how, how do we wait faithfully? How do we do this life here before the second coming in a way that honors Jesus? Uh, what does that look like? I think waiting in particular is something we need to think about because we probably all know it's one of the hardest things to do. None of us likes waiting for much of anything, especially if we are not prepared. Um, I don't know if you remember, but there was a time when we used to fly in airplanes all over the world. Remember that? And, um, and one of the things we hated was when there was a layover, because it meant a lot of waiting. But if it was a layover that we expected, it wasn't so bad. I mean, if we had five hours to wait in the Chicago airport, that was okay, because if I knew about it ahead of time, I'd make sure I had my book, I'd have a few movies queued up, lots of extra snacks, Four hours in Toronto, no problem. I can do that as long as I know about it. But if there was an unscheduled layover, oh, that was the worst. Because all of a sudden, you'd have to be somewhere that, you know, in Delaware for six hours. And you'd say to the person, what, six hours? Do we really need that part of the plane? Can we just keep moving? I don't want, I'm not ready. I almost finished my book. I have 20 minutes left on my movie. I have no good snacks. What am I supposed to do? And if you have young kids, frankly, it's better to move to that town than to try to, to try to do a layover, an unexpected, unscheduled layover, the worst. 
So look, what we've learned in our lives is that um, if we know what to expect, waiting tends to go better. And what we're going to see about our waiting before the end is that timing-wise, we're actually not given a lot of details. But we are told what to expect in this time of waiting. And we do see very clearly that there's a call for us as Christians to be faithful. So we should be interested in knowing what does that, that look like? What does the time of waiting look like? And what does it look like for us to be faithful? So here's our question again. Uh, how do we wait faithfully? There are going to be three parts to the answer. Uh, the first one is this. We should expect tribulation. Tribulation. Now, uh, this is not a word that we hear very often. It, it basically means trials and hardships and, and sufferings. And we find it a number of times in, in the Bible, uh, sometimes in relation to just Christian living and sometimes in relation to the end. And uh, just a comment about kind of when you're learning and studying about the end times, uh, if you're familiar at all with end times theology, you probably know that there are uh, areas of disagreement within the Christian church about kind of how things are going to go, what's going to happen, when it's going to happen. Uh, for the most part in this series, we're trying to focus on the things that there's a high level of agreement on. But to get there, we do have to talk about those things where there are different points of view. And that's okay. Uh, it's okay with certain secondary issues to have different points of view. But we should want to look into the Bible and find out in terms of our own convictions what is true. So with the topic of tribulation, you need to know there's some disagreement. Now, there isn't disagreement about the fact that it exists and that it's part of the Christian life. I mean, everyone in the church knows that, agrees to that. Uh, we see it time and again that Jesus said prepare for, for difficulties and trials. Um, here's John 16, just so we're, we're clear. This is Jesus speaking. And he said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. So the assumption for the Christian church, if you're a believer, is look, there's going to be trials in life. There's going to be difficulties. In fact, God's going to use those difficulties to grow me in my faith. No one really disagrees about that. But, but there is some disagreement about tribulation in the end times. And there are different kind of points of view. Some people will say, look, things are going to get worse. They're going to get worse and worse and worse. Tribulation is going to increase. There are others that say uh, things are going to get worse and worse, but actually it's just for the world. The church is going to be gone, so we don't have to worry about it. We'll talk about that. And there are even those that say that things are actually going to get better. Like as time goes on, things are going to get better and better. There's going to be less tribulation. So we're going to talk about each one of these points of view, and we're going to start with those that say things are going to get better, because you might be thinking to yourself, how are things going to get better? Things never get better. Why would, why would you think they'd get better? Well, those in the church that believe this, they, they point to the power of the gospel. They, they point to the power of the kingdom of God, and they, what they say is, look, the gospel changes hearts. The gospel changes individual hearts, which ends up changing families, which, which changes communities and cities, and that this influence of the gospel is so strong that it will, it will grow and gain traction in our world to the point that there is less and less evil and there is more and more people seeking to honor Jesus and there'll be less tribulation. And they root this view in an understanding of the kingdom of heaven and some of the pictures that Jesus gives about the power of the kingdom. So uh, here is one of the kind of key parables that they point to. And as you read it, just think about what this is really saying about the gospel and about the kingdom of heaven here on earth right now. So here's Matthew 13, uh, starting in verse 31. This is Jesus. He's, he put another parable before them, the disciples, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed 
that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And so you see really what he's describing, that the, the kingdom of heaven that's here and now, it begins small, which it did just with one man, Jesus, and the, and the disciples there, and it's grown throughout the entire world. And it's not just going to grow in numbers, but it's going to grow in influence to the point that eventually good is going to triumph over evil and that the tribulation in the world will decrease so that even though we are still waiting for the second coming of Jesus, we're waiting not in trial, we're waiting in joy. So we're going to interact with this view more on our night of eschatology, have someone come in and represent it. Um, but for now, what I want to do is, is to, I'm going to push back a little bit on this view. I want to push us to some of those texts in scripture that might lead us in another direction. Because remember, our big idea here is what, what should we expect in this time of waiting? It's a big difference if we think that things are going to get better and better and better or if they're going to get worse. So um, first thing I would point to is that there are some definite passages in the Bible that give the impression that there is going to be difficulty for the church right up until the end. Um, there's a passage we looked at last week that I want to come back to. This is Revelation 6, verses 10 and 11. This is uh, those who have been killed for the faith. They're now souls in heaven waiting. And, and listen to what it says. Um, it says, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given, each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So what I see going on here is that this is not the end. There are still people on earth and then there are souls in heaven and the souls in heaven are saying, when is justice going to come? And the answer is it's, it's going to come, but first those on earth are going to suffer more and these are people who are faithful, who are going to die for their faith. These are members of the church. So what that sounds to me like is tribulation. Is that for those on the earth, even, you know, there are those who've already died and gone to heaven, but those who remain, those in the church now and for the foreseeable future, there's going to be times when we are called to give our lives for our faith. And this is still happening all over the world. So that, that tells me tribulation is going to continue until the end. Also, also, while there are parables that clearly show the power of the gospel and the kingdom, there are other parables that give the distinct impression that evil is going to be present in the world right up into the end. So here's another parable um, just after that one we looked at before about the leaven. Uh, Matthew 13, Jesus is giving a parable of a field, and in the field, which is the world, there's good seeds and, and weeds. And he says this, the, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. So again there, what I see is he's saying, at the end of the age, that is the time when the angels will go into the world, and what they find in the world are a lot of weeds evildoers, sinners, lawbreakers. They, they don't just find everyone who's worshiping Jesus. They find a lot of evil, which means that there must have been a lot of tribulation in the world for the church. So yes, yes, the gospel is, is powerful. Yes, the gospel changes hearts. But what we're seeing here in terms of our expectations 
is that it's, t- it's tough, I would suggest, biblically to see that things are going to get better and better and better. There does seem to be tribulation present right until the end. On the flip side, there are those that indeed say, look, things are going to get worse. They would point to parables like this and say, it, it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. In fact, there is going to be a distinct time of tribulation, capital T, right before the end. And they would point to verses like uh, this in Matthew 24. Uh, Matthew 24 is where we're going to be a lot, sort of for the rest of it. So if you want to put a bookmark in there, we're going to come back to it again and again. Uh, Here's verses 21. For then, this is Jesus speaking, for then there will be great tribulation. Such has, has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And in those days, had not been, if they had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. And so they take this, and they also look to parts of Revelation, uh, especially uh, chapters 12 and 13, where there are some very vivid images of Satan persecuting the church. And they say, look, there's, there's going to be tribulation. It's going to be very intense. It's going to get worse. It's going to be, some say, for everyone. And others say, this is only going to be for the world. Because the church, the church is going to be gone. In fact, what's going to happen to the church is they are going to be raptured. We are going to be raptured. And if you haven't heard of that uh, word before, uh, the idea of the rapture is that um, at an unexpected day, Jesus will return, but not fully. He will come and he will snatch up all of the believers in the world and those who are left will go through a time of intense tribulation. Now, this also is something we need to think deeply about because, again, it totally changes their expectation. Like if you think as part of the church that you're going to live and then all of a sudden be gone one day and not go through the tribulation, that's different than if you know that it's going to be hard right until the end. So we're going to take a few moments to uh, learn about and think about biblically the rapture. And we're going to begin with a bit of history. Um, The rapture, the idea of it, is in fact not very old. You may not realize this, but it first appeared in the work of John Nelson Darby in the 1840s. Uh, from, he, was, um, he developed dispensational theology. That's kind of where that came from. But his idea of the rapture was included in the Schofield Reference Bible of 1909. Now, this was a hot seller because uh, it was the first Bible that had notes in the Bible. I mean, for us, we buy study Bibles all the time. It makes so much sense. But this was the first time someone put the notes in the Bible. People were like, this is great. I don't have to carry around my set of commentaries. I have it here with me. It's fantastic. In those notes, though, they would explain certain passages of the Bible and say, look, this is the rapture of the church. And so the idea began to grow, began to have influence. Um, It was taught in seminaries. Many pastors and theologians adopted this point of view to this very day. Many respected pastors. Uh, they, They believe that this is, in fact, what will happen in the end. But... This idea of the rapture really gained sort of a cultural uh, idea and people knew about it outside of the church in the 1990s because that was when two Christian authors, Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins, they wrote a series of novels called Left Behind. Do you know these books? I'm going to show you some pictures. So that's the initial book. You may have read it, some of you. Um, In 1996, they wrote a whole bunch of them. Then there was a first movie that I have seen with Kirk Cameron, I love Kirk, called Left Behind, and they remade it again with Nicolas Cage in uh, 2013. And uh, all of these stories, the idea is that all of a sudden, one day, all the Christians are gone. That people wake up and the people they knew, their neighbors are gone. The rapture has happened. And then all of the events of Revelation, as they understand it, play themselves out. So it's a fictionalized version of what um, certain Christians would say is actually going to happen. 
So the big idea with um, these, these books and with the rapture is that you, you do not want to be left behind. Because if you're left behind, that means that you are not a true believer. And it means that you are going to go through the tribulation. So we need to understand, is this in fact a biblical idea? Uh, and if it is, where, where do we see it? So we're going to look at two passages uh, that are kind of the main passages that people point to and say, look, here's, here's the rapture. This is, this is coming. Uh, the first is in Matthew 24, verses 37 to 41. Here's what Jesus uh, teaches. He says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So you can see a couple of things here that, that really seem like this idea of the rapture. For one thing, you see that we don't know when Jesus is coming back. And the other thing, key thing we see is that there's a distinction made between the people of earth. Uh, there, there are two people, two men in a field. One is taken, one is left. Uh, there are two women at the mill. One is taken, one is left. That is very clearly communicated in this passage. My question, though, about the passage is this. Is it a good thing or a bad thing to be left behind in this passage? See, with the idea of the rapture, it's a bad thing to be uh, left behind. But if you notice what Jesus compares the end to, he compares it to the time of Noah. He says in the, in the time of Noah, the people were eating and drinking. They weren't paying attention to the signs. They weren't seeing that Noah's building this big ark and saying that the judgment is coming. And so what happens at the end of that sequence? What happens is, is that the flood comes and sweeps away all of the people who weren't ready into judgment. But the people who are left behind in the ark are safe. So you see, it's hard to take that and then apply it to the idea of a rapture. Because the, the idea of a rapture is the opposite. What Jesus, I would suggest, seems to be saying in this passage is, is not that, look, one day the church is going to be raptured from the earth, but that one day Jesus will come and that he will bring judgment and that we need to be ready. We need to be ready for the coming of Jesus and for the, the judgment that comes. So that's the first passage and, and kind of my, I guess, pushback on that in terms of is it really teaching that there will be a rapture? The second passage is... Um, really kind of the passage that people will say, look, this is, this is a description of the rapture. This is what's going to happen. This is in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 15. It says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, uh, those who've died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of, of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So again, at first glance, it seems like there's a lot of elements here that feel like a rapture. I mean, Jesus is descending from the air. The believers are caught up with him together uh, in the air. That uh, word caught up in the, in the Latin uh, means rapturo. That's the, what it sounds like. That's where we get the idea of rapture. So all of this sounds like, yeah, that sort of feels like a sudden rapture of the church. But I would, I would point out some things in the text that still point in a different direction. 
And one of the main things I'd point to is the word meat. There's a word meat there. It said that all those who are alive would, would meet the Lord in the air. Uh, that word meat is not like meeting for coffee. It's a very specific term. It's a kind of meeting. Uh, the kind of meeting it is, is when a ruler or a king or a dignitary is returning to their hometown, all of the people in the town, they go out to meet the ruler and then they come back into the town with him. So for example, it's used to describe Caesar. Uh, and there's documents where it's written that the people of Rome, Caesar's coming back, he just, you know, defeated a whole bunch of, of adversaries and they go out to meet him with all their banners and they're waving their trumpets, they're celebrating and then Caesar leads them back into the town. So they don't meet and go away, they meet and they come back. It's also used uh, to talk about Paul in the Bible. It says that his disciples came out and met Paul outside of a city, then they came back into the city. So if we're thinking about what is actually being described here, it's not that the, the believers are being caught up and then go away. They're, they're being caught up to see Jesus in his second coming. They're celebrating. They're giving a welcome that is honoring to the King of King and Lord of Lords and then returning to earth so that all of the events of the final judgment can play themselves out. I suggest that's a, that's a better understanding of this text. And it's in keeping with the context of what's going on in 1 Thessalonians. Because right after that, we get these verses at the beginning of chapter 5. Uh, now concerning, this is still Jesus speaking. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's it. That, that's what Paul is talking about. This whole time, this whole description in Thessalonians is talking about the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus will return. And the point is, we don't know when he is coming, but when he does, it will be a grand celebration for all those who are left alive on the earth and that he will return, he will come, and he will judge the earth. So, so in terms of expectations, right, what should we expect? I'm suggesting that Christians are not waiting for the rapture. We're waiting for the second coming of Jesus. And during that time, there will be tribulation. And so now the question is, if you're with me thus far, what kind of, what does that mean, tribulation? If that's what's going to happen, what, what should I expect? Because remember, expectations are, are key. If we're told there's a layover, what's the first question we have? How long? What, what's it, what's it going to be? Are you giving me any vouchers for, for food? Is there like a first-class lounge we can break into? Like, you have to help me to know how long, what's this going to be like? Because then I will be able to calibrate my expectations and my actions, and we should be thinking the same thing. This tribulation that we see in Scripture, what is it going to be like? What, is, what are we being called to? So the first thing we need to know about the, the word itself is that it means crushing pressure. That's literally what it means. Tribulation, crushing pressure. Now, I know that we all feel pressure in life, um, but this is not just like the frustrations of life. For example, it's not appropriate if like when the Wi-Fi is really spotty and you're so frustrated, it would not be appropriate to say, oh, when will this tribulation end? That's not, that's not what this is talking about. It's not just hard things that happen. What it's talking about is a specific kind of pressure. When the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the enemy in the world, they come into conflict. Like big cosmic conflict. Like good and evil, light and dark, God and Satan. The kind of thing we see all through the Bible. You go to the beginning, apart from the first two chapters, you're going to see this, this tribulation, this conflict. Satan comes and tempts Eve. Sin floods into the world. Everything comes unraveled. 
God says from now on there's going to be there's going to be enmity, conflict between your offspring, and we see that all through the Old Testament. But not only do we see opposition against the people of God, we sometimes get windows into what's going on behind the scenes, like with Job. We see that Satan comes to God and says, hey, Job, he's one of yours. I want to mess with him. I want to give him trials and suffering, tribulation. God lets him do it. It's a test of faith. We see this has been happening throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Jesus has many, many conflicts with demons, with the agents of the enemy. He himself is tempted by Satan. And we could be led to think that Well, when we're talking about tribulation, it must be some supernatural, crazy, cosmic event that's going to happen, and then we'll know that the end is coming. But in fact, that's that's not really the way that tribulation is used. That's part of it. But it's actually happening in the everyday circumstances of our lives. So let me point you to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 2. This is where Jesus is speaking to the different churches. Uh, One of them is Smyrna. And this is a faithful church. And um, they are trying to be faithful in the town of Smyrna. But Jesus tells them, look, there's going to be hardship and trial because there's a group of Jews that are loyal to Rome. They don't like you. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the gospel. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Now if you just leave that up there for a moment and just look at the words there, think for a minute, who is going to throw them into prison? It says the devil. But do we actually think that back then the devil himself would have appeared and grabbed them and thrown them into prison? Probably not. Probably it was like a Roman soldier. At, at the leading of the Jewish leader, saying, you gotta, you got to get these guys. So what we're seeing here is the, the conflict behind the conflict. What Jesus is doing to encourage this church is to say, look, there is going to be trial and difficulty. The real tribulation is happening. Satan is opposing you, and you're going to see it in the people of the world, in the forces of the world that are pushing back against you. This is what you should expect Jesus is saying, if you're trying to be faithful in the world. In fact, in fact, for all of us, the tribulation that we experience from now until the end is not just the difficulties of life, it's the crushing pressure that comes from trying to live faithfully for Jesus in a world that is controlled by the devil. That is the nature of the tribulation. That's why in Ephesians 6, I'm just going to read this. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the nature of the tribulation, the conflict that's been going on for the church since the beginning. So seen from this vantage point then, the tribulation that comes near the end is not a new thing. See what I'm saying? It's not something totally different that descends upon the earth and all of a sudden everyone's like, whoa, what what is going on? It's a continuation of the same kinds of conflicts and pressures that have been in the church since the very, very beginning. In fact, this this is what we see from Jesus. When he's asked about the end, he says, look, there's going to be tribulation. Here's again in Matthew, verse nine. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation 
and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Jesus is saying, this isn't something that's going to happen way in the future. This is something that's happening now. This is something that's always been happening. From the first century, second century, third to the 20th century, in our lives right now, this is the kind of things that are going on. Not just in the world big picture, but in our lives as individuals. The warnings here from Jesus are not just for some nameless Christians, they're for us. If you're seeking to live as a disciple of Jesus, these things apply to us. We are hated at times because we associate ourselves with Jesus. We are tempted to fall away and betray each other for various conflicts within the church, conflicts within our own social group, whatever it may be. We are tempted to be led astray by false prophets in the world. I'm not just talking about false religious leaders, but people who have YouTube channels and product lines and books that we buy. And they say, look, this is the best way to live. This will bring you comfort and joy. And it's a temptation because it kind of works in the moment. And we forget the fact that it has nothing to do with the gospel. And that in the end, it will lead to our destruction. We're tempted in that way. We, we feel tribulation in that way. Our hearts may very well grow cold towards God because of the lawlessness, like the sin in our lives. That's a real source of tribulation for each one of us. That even though we're here on a Sunday or we're tuning in on a Sunday, there's temptation in our lives. And we're, we're engaging in sin more and more to the point we can't see it, but in the future, we're going to have no affection for Christ. It's a danger, a warning it's, it's the nature of the tribulation. Yes, it's cosmic and grand, but it's also, it's also personal. Now, we shouldn't, we shouldn't think that because of all this talk about tribulation that the gospel is not at work. I mean, that is true. That parable that we saw about, about the mustard seed growing, that, that is true. They're, they're, again and again, it's affirmed. Jesus says, look, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gospel changes hearts, changes lives, changes communities. Praise God. We see it over and over again. All we need to do, though, is put that together with the reality that there will be opposition. That both those things are true. And when we see that clearly, it, it does calibrate our expectations for what our life will look like. That it will be one where we are seeking to be faithful to Jesus, but also that we're going to have pushback. So hopefully by this point, uh, you've, you've, you've been convinced that you should expect tribulation. But the question still remains, okay, well then how, how, do, how am I faithful in it? What am I supposed to do if that is in fact what's going to happen in my life? So, point number two. In light of all this, we as the church, we need to be ready. We need to be ready. That's the emphasis we see over and over again in Scripture. Readiness. Look here in, again in Matthew do 36 and then jump to 42. Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the son, but the father only. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known on what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You'll notice there, Jesus is saying, don't worry about the timing. You're, you're not going to know. You can't figure it out. 
But just because you don't know the timing doesn't mean you can't be ready. If you're a homeowner, you can't, you don't, can't know when the thief is going to come and break in, but you can do things to be ready. You can buy lasers and cameras and stuff that will protect your house. It's a good thing. Back in the first century, you'd get a dog or a, I don't know, watchman or something. You'd, you can prepare your home. You can be ready, even though you don't know when he's coming. He's saying the same thing is true of Jesus. You don't know when Jesus is going to return, but you can be ready for when he returns. And the way to do that is to live a life of obedience and to live a life of honoring Jesus. That's how we're faithful. Jesus continues on right after the part about the the thief. And he says this, who then is the faithful and wise servant? That's our question. Who's faithful? Whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus' point is, is look, it matters what you were doing while you wait. It, it matters. It, it matters what Jesus finds you doing when he returns. We don't know when he will return. But when he does come back, what is he going to find in our lives? Is he going to find us being obedient to his word? Or is he going to find us giving into the pressures of the tribulation? That we are, we are entering into lawlessness, into sin, into disobedience. I mean, this is a question that this, this text is leading each one of us to ask. If Jesus had come back yesterday, what would he have found us doing? Would we be in the midst of, of doing the things that he had called us to do? Or would we, be, would we be undone? Because, in fact, our life is not one of obedience. We need to be ready. We need to be ready day in, day out, for Jesus to return because the consequences are eternal. And the reality is what we're doing while we're waiting reveals what's going on in our heart. It's fine to say that we're followers of Jesus, but if we're not in the act of doing it, then our true faith is revealed or lack of it. So we need to be ready. And the other thing about being ready, though, is then we need to endure. That's the other thing we see time and again. We need to endure. We need to persevere. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. What Jesus is saying here is, is look, it's, it's the perseverance to the end that reveals our faith. And this is to be expected. And especially, especially because as we are ready, as we are obedient, there is going to be more tribulation in our lives. This is the dynamic that we need to be clear on. Because it's one thing to think it's, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. But it's another thing to think that as we move forward, in the direction that God is leading us, that the very act of moving forward will bring more pushback against us. That is the picture we should have for all those who are seeking to be faithful while we wait. And if you want an even more vivid description, think for a moment of, of what happened on D-Day. On D-Day, when, when all of Europe pretty much had been conquered by the Nazis, when evil was running rampant, And the allied forces were coming to do battle. What did they do? They landed on the beaches. 
they parachuted into France and they began to push. And think about it. The more that they pushed, the more opposition that was there. And that was the point. They had a very clear expectation that if we are going in the right direction, it's going to get harder and harder and harder. The fighting will be more difficult, but that's where we need to go because we need to win the battle. The same thing is true for us while we wait. We live in a world that has been conquered by sin. We've been sent into it with the gospel that can liberate those who are enslaved to sin, who are lost. But as we do that, there's going to be more pushback. And we should expect it. We should expect it because in our lives, God is going to call us to things. You may right now be knowing that God has been calling you to step out in faith in a certain way, to speak up for the for the sake of the gospel, to reach out to someone who, who doesn't know Jesus. And you know if you do that there's a very good chance there's going to be pushback. If your expectation for your life is one of comfort here now, you're probably not going to make that step. You're, you're, going, to, you're going to pull back. You're not going to persevere and endure and be ready. The call for us as the church is to go forward over and over again, day in, day out, in the in the relationships of our lives, in the opportunities we have, so that more and more people will know Jesus. And the only way we're going to be able to do that successfully is if we remember what it is that we have. We have the gospel. We have to remember the truths of the gospel, that Jesus is a good master who has set us free from all of the true tyranny in our lives. He sacrificed his very self so that we would be set free so that the doors of heaven will be thrown open wide and we can experience that kingdom a little bit now and even more so when he returns. We have to remember the truths of the gospel that our greatest danger is really in our own heart. Our inability to really grasp on to the, to the truth of Christ and the fickleness of our heart that we are led astray so easily. When we have these things secure in our mind that Jesus is our only hope, then we will be able to endure to the end in obedience, in faithfulness. And the longing of our mind and heart will be that on the day that we see Jesus, he speaks words that fill us with joy, fill us with, with comfort, fill us with a great sense of satisfaction that we have been faithful because the words we long to hear is our well done, good and faithful servant. You may enter into the rest of your master. That is what we should long to hear. That is why we persevere, why we push, why we endure. Because we want to please our master who's done everything to save us. So how do we wait faithfully? Three things. We expect tribulation. We are ready for Jesus to return at any moment. And we endure to the end believing and proclaiming the gospel for the good of the world and for the glory of God. Let me pray that that would be true for us as a church. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for the insight you give us into the inner workings of our lives. Lord, we, we can only see just a, a minute amount of what is actually going on. And we need your help to see ourselves clearly, to see that the conflict in the world clearly. And so Lord, I pray for us. I pray especially for those um, who are enduring tribulation right now. Lord, I pray for those of us that are feeling a tug towards certain steps of faith, certain steps of obedience, and we've just been resisting because we know that it's going to be harder. It'd be so much easier just to, just to go in the other direction. Yet because we love you, 
because we, we want to strive to do what is right, Lord, I pray you would compel us to continue pushing in the direction of righteousness and holiness and goodness. And I pray, Lord, that we would have the joy of seeing your gospel indeed transform many lives around us. Lord, we're so thankful that we have the answer to, to the joy that all human beings long for. And thankful, Lord, that we have hope in the end. I pray, Lord Jesus, that, that we as a church, as a Christian community, uh, we would indeed be a light in the darkness. And Lord, that we'd use us in mighty ways and that we would not be people of fear, but that we'd be people of courage, especially in these times which are uncertain. I pray, Lord, that we would know what is coming in the end and that we would seek to be faithful until then. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.